This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. We plow and sow, we are so low that we delve in the dirty clay Till we bless the plain with a golden grain and the vale with a fragrant hay Our place we know, we are so low down at the landlord's feet Oh, we're not too low, the bread to grow, too low, the bread to eat. Hello and welcome to this episode of Rebel Lives, part of the A People's History of Scotland podcast series. In today's episode, we'll be taking a look at the life and work of Robert Burns. I'm your host, Sophie Johnson, and as usual, I'm joined by Chris Bambury, author of A People's History of Scotland. And today, we're very lucky to be joined by Billy Kay, author of Scots, The Mother Tongue. You'll also hear some passages of Burns' poetry throughout today's episode. Those will be read by Alice Kinghorn Gray. Robert Burns was born in 1759 into a family of tenant farmers in Galloway, Ayrshire. At that time, an agrarian revolution was transforming Scotland, and Burns witnessed the huge benefits that were reaped by landlords while tenant farmers were being squeezed out and were either forced to leave for the towns and cities or else condemned to a life of grinding poverty and back-breaking work. In his poem, The Vision, he describes himself as half-mad, half-fed and half-circuit. Later, he said he was condemned to the unceasing toil of a galley slave. Billy, how important was his early life to his poetry? It was hugely important. I mean, that image there of the, the galley slave, I mean, he comes up with that in Scots where he too, slavery, of course, existed at that time. And uh, Scotland was very much part of a, a slave uh, enjoying economy. So Burns would have been aware of that and wrote a great song, The Virginia Slaves Lament. But at the same time, Scotland was had one of the most advanced working classes in Europe because of the desire to teach basic literacy to everyone that goes back to the days of the Reformation. And although Burns was for a very modest background, his father got him a tutor and he studied and learned at home with a a clever tutor who taught him some French, taught him some history, taught him literature. And he was reading from a very early age too. That is revealed in the goings-on in the Bachelors Club in Terbolton, for example. They were obviously very literate. So although he was from a background that could lead to toil obscure and all that, he actually had a rich cultural background as well, from the written books that he read, and especially from a brilliant oral tradition and oral history and a musical tradition that he would eventually contribute hugely to. So that's really interesting. Although he grew up surrounded by poverty, he was also very educated for someone of his class. Burns was no friend of the landlords. Here's an attack on MacDonald of Glengarry in his poem, Address of Beelzebub, written in 1786. Glengarry had been trying to stop his tenants migrating to Canada to escape a life of poverty. But here, my lord, Glengarry, here, your hands are light on them, I fear. Your factors, greaves, trustees, and bailies, I cannot say, but they do gailies. They lay aside the tender mercies and turtle the hallions to the burses. Yet while they're only pointed and harriet, 
They'll keep their stubborn highland spirit. But smash them, crash them out of spells, and rot the divers out the jails. The young dogs swing them to the labour, let work and hunger make them sober. The hisses, if their Auckland's fossent, let them in, Drury Lane be lessened. And if the wives and dirty brat come thiggin' at your doors and yets, flaffin' wee duds and grey wee bees, freightin' away your dukes and geese, get out a horsewhip or a jowler, the langest thong, the fiercest growler, and gar the tattered gypsies pack, we are the bastards on their back. Burns was brought up in a Presbyterian society and identified with the New Lichts, who, among other things, challenged the patronage within the established kirk, where landlords, not congregations, could appoint new ministers. How important was that? I think it was very important. I mean, obviously, in the next century, the 1830s, you'd see the Great Schism over the question of patronage in the kirk. I think it's important because he was basically taking a stance in support of democracy inside the Kirk, that the congregation should control what was going on. And he was very influenced by that. And Billy's alluded to as well that the whole Calvinist tradition in Scotland put a great emphasis on education, fairly uniquely in Europe at that time. So he's illiterate. But at the same time, of course, Burns was in trouble with the Kirk over his sex life and his drinking. And this was a time when you, know, when you would be punished. That the Kirk was very much the police of moral behaviour in Scottish society. Uh, he didn't give in to that. He continued to uh, womanise. And I, I think, you know, you can criticise him, I think, for his sex life, but he was a man of his time. Mm-hmm. I think it comes across in things like Aphon Kiss, that actually he was quite liberal in his attitudes at the time. So he, I think he could be praised for that. And, of course, he will move on in 1789, having already been a supporter of the American Revolution, the biggest event in his life will come with the French Revolution, which he rallies to from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Just to pick up on that, I mean, some of his greatest work are his Kirk satires, like Holy Willie's Prayer, where he condemns the hypocrisy of characters like Holy Willie and sends them up mercilessly. And they would be circulating in Mochlin and Ear Alloway at the time and they would have added to the, the New Left philosophy. New Left was very much associated with the Enlightenment as well. Old Left was very much associated with a, a Calvinist past that was receding. In his poetry, Burns always managed to bring in a, the sensual, even in his Kirk satires. I mean, there's the great scene where uh, Willie will never lift a lawless leg again upon her. Um, <laughs> in the Holy Willie's Prayer, or in the, the Holy Fear, he describes, on one hand, the brilliant preaching of the Old Licht and the New Licht ministers, but then, on the other hand, he describes what's going on all round about him, with the lads drinking and putting their arm round the lassies and the arm maybe drifts down, etc., etc. He's always, he's always celebrating the people and the culture of the people and the, the vitality of the people while having a go at the establishment, be it the political establishment or the religious establishment, yes. And, and he, he was very much a man of his time. Some of his attitudes were expressed, though, in privately circulated letters that were only published after his death because he was aware that there were, there were curse and there were dynamite. His Merry Muses of Caledonia was only published after his death. 
So he's a man of his time and he's aware of what he can do and what he can't do. I mean, he was an absolute genius. Therefore, he got off in some ways eh, and was loved for the community because of that. And I would maintain, as somebody who grew up in Ayrshire in the 1950s, that was maintained right through to my childhood in Ayrshire, where my family were steeped in the Burns tradition, full of great singers. My dad played the man's a man for all that and the Burra Band and New Year's Morning. Literally popular culture at Ayrshire parties in the 1950s and 60s was a mixture of the Beatles on the four tops on one side and Robbie Burns' songs on the other side. He was still an active literary figure and part of popular culture, certainly as late as the 1960s and early 70s in Ayrshire. So it's interesting that you bring up Holy Willie's prayer there because, as you said, it's, it's an attack on the hypocrisy of one of the Kirk elders. But I was wondering, do you think Burns took issue with the Kirk as an institution or do you think his criticisms were part of a more general critique of the governing classes? I think it's more a critique. I mean, there's a contradiction with Burns in the sense that to get on in Scotland at this time, he's got to try and find patronage from the landlording class and he's not successful. And he gets up, but he's not successful. I think there's a sort of patronising element to this. He's seen as uh, sort of representing romanticism, which is the great tradition of the time, Wordsworth and so on, but it's it's patronising. It's looking down at him, almost passing his head. You know, that's really good, you can write poetry. I think he gets that when he visits Edinburgh. And at the same time, he's coming from a society where, not as dramatic as the Highland Clearances, but really the, the class he represents, the cords, the tenant farmers, are being liquidated by a more gradual process of clearance as the agrarian revolution moves on. It's moving towards bigger farms, it's moving towards use of machinery and so on. And there's definitely a resentment there, which is representing the circles he comes from. And part of that is the church, because as I say, the New West is a break from a Kirk which is associated with essentially the landlord class through their ability to appoint ministers when one dies. And that's the issue that the New York breaks from over the question of patronage. So I think he represents a democratic spirit, which is there in Scottish society at the time. It's there over the issues of support for the American Revolution, which is popular. It will become popular with the French Revolution. The other issue we should mention too is slavery. You know, opposition to slavery really ran through much of Scottish society, a majority, I would say at that time. And it's all there in his poetry and his belief and his writings. Unfortunately, I mean, if the Kilmarnock edition hadn't been successful, he would probably have gone to work on a plantation in Jamaica as a, as a bookkeeper, where he would have seen the hell on earth that the plantations were at first hand. And who knows what kind of poetry and uh, what kind of stuff he would have written about that. But he was, he was spared from that. But... Uh, interestingly, one of the great people who eventually managed to get rid of slavery, Frederick Douglass, uh, the great American, African-American political figure, he was a great fan of Burns and quoted Burns regularly, especially A Man's A Man for All That. He visited Scotland and referred to Burns a lot. He came over to Scotland to try and get the Kirk in the Highlands to give the money back that they had been given by Southern landowners to support the creation of the Free Kirk. So it's it's an ongoing thing. He became part of an active culture and he influenced people in that culture. Another aside there is that another great fan of Burns was uh, Abraham Lincoln. And he referred to the fact that he got his humanity from the, the poetry of Robert Burns. He was a friend 
of a, a guy from Scotland who quoted Burns at him, and Lincoln was able to uh, quote huge screens of Burns in Scots to the astonishment of people in several speeches. He would quote Burns's songs and Burns's poems, and he famously refused to give the immortal memory to a Burns club in, in Chicago, Illinois, saying that he didn't have the eloquence of Burns, therefore he wouldn't even attempt to give the immortal memory. But in other sources and political speeches, he would refer to Burns and quote from Burns. So that's two people, uh, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, who were profoundly affected by Burns and his inclusive world picture, despite the fact that he could have easily become part of the that slave economy in Jamaica if, the, if he hadn't been successful as a poet. A feature yeah. of Burns' work is certainly his, his commentary on the deep social inequality of the time. And the twa dugs, Caesar, the dog of a landlord, and Lewis, the dog of a cotter, contrast their lives. Here Lewis tells Caesar of his life. Truff, Caesar, whiles they're fast enough, a cotter hiking in a shoe, wee dirty stains, and big in a dyke, bare in a quarry, and sick like, himself a wife he thus sustains, a smeeter o wee duddy wains, and naught but his hand erg to keep, them right and tight, and back and wake, and when they meet we say our disasters, like loss o' health or one o' masters. Ye must what think, a wee touch lanner, and they mon starve a cold and hunger. But how it comes, I never kenned yet. They're mostly wonderful, contented, and birdly chills and clever hisses are bred and sit away as this is. Billy, at the time, there were critics of Burns for writing in Scots. But am I right in thinking he was more powerful using his own tongue rather than English? Yes, eh, there's a great... A great quote from Burns himself, talking about when he was collecting songs in English and Scots. These English songs gravel me to death. I have not that command of the language that I have of my native tongue. In fact, I think my ideas are more barren in English than in Scottish. And a perfect example of that is uh, the infamous attitude of some of the critics at the time, like Henry Mackenzie, who wrote a famous critique of the Kilmarnock edition and said the one bar to his fame is the language in which his poetry is written. In other words, suggesting he should switch to English. And had Burns taken that advice and only written in English, he would be another obscure Augustan, a neoclassic Edinburgh poet like Dr. Blacklock. And who's ever heard of Dr. Blacklock? No, it's absolutely when Burns writes in his native tongue, that he achieves greatness and achieves world-renowned and becomes a world-class poet. Uh, the, you know, the medium is the message. And uh, his, by far his most powerful work is in his native Scots language. And it was just part of the, the Anglo-centric fashion at the time, really, that criticised his, his work in Scots. Because while the literati were criticising it, the masses were lapping up and reciting it and quoting from it. And it was that oral tradition that Burns had. And interestingly, nowadays where there's a lot of a lot of monoglot English speakers who still can't handle Scots, in those days, people handled linguistic diversity a lot easier than people today. 
and you have got gatherings of 3,000 in places like Boston and New York in the middle of the 19th century, where they're hearing non-stop Scots poetry and understanding and identifying with it. So yes, Scots is central to who he is then, and Scots is still central to Scottish culture now. I'm at the moment writing my memoirs of growing up in Ayrshire in the 1950s and 60s, and the whole book will be written in Scots. A bit like John Galt's Annals of the Parish from the late 18th, early 19th century. I'm talking about Maui Parish in the 1950s and 60s. But Burns used both Scots and English dialects in his work, right? So why and to what effect does he do this, Billy? He, well, he uses them to get four options for his rhymes. <laughs> and literally, there's a bit in the mother tongue where I examine passages from, from Tam Shanter and where I show that one rhyme depends on an English pronunciation, the next rhyme depends on an Ayrshire Scots pronunciation, etc., etc. So this gave him a much greater range, but he was profoundly aware that to really express the culture, it had to be in Scots. I mean, there's great passages in Tamashanter where he suddenly goes and waxes lyrical in English, and it's beautiful. Pleasures are like poppies spread, you seize the flower as bloom is shed. Or like the snow falls in the river, a moment white then melts forever. Or like the borealis race that flit ere you can point their place. Or like the rainbow's lovely form vanishing amid the storm. But then he suddenly goes, Nay man can tether time nor tide, the oor approaches tam mun ride. That oor, that oor on next black erts the keystone, that dreary oor he mounts his beast in, and sick a nicht he tacks her within, as ne'er person her was abroad in. That passage there, I learned at Gosson Primary School, aged about seven and eight, as pair to the, the Burns competition. And interestingly, about the only time you were allowed to speak Scots was when the Burns competition was on the go. The rest of the time you would be discouraged, sometimes with the, with the toes, with the belt, not to speak Scots. So we live in a very, very strange culture. And the strangeness really began Run about Burns's time, where the incorporating union began to incorporate his folks' heaths as well. And I'm afraid that's still ongoing. Chris, as you mentioned, Scotland at this time was a centre of the Enlightenment. How do you think that impacted on Burns? I think it did impact on Burns. It's about ideas about freedom, liberty, wage equality and fraternity. They're being discussed. I mean, Scottish academics, thinkers like Hume, are discussing with Voltaire. They're discussing with Thomas Jefferson. So these ideas coming into Scottish mainstream society, and they're trickling down. And I think what's interesting about Burns as well, yes, is enlightenment ideas, but he also uses an existing folk tradition. So, for instance, he writes, I would argue, four Jacobite poetry and songs, like Camus or France. Jacques, I think, is not about support for the Jacobites. It's a scathing attack on the Hanoverian monarchy, George III. I mean, it's vitriolic in, in attacking the Hanoverians. And he's found a way of promoting egalitarian ideas in support of things like universal franchise and social equality by masking them under, if you like, a sort of nostalgic Jacobitism. So he's taken an existing folklore tradition brilliantly and he's adapting it to his own use. And, you know, much later on, uh, he'll write, and he'll write anonymously. It has to, because he's been re severe repression now, 1793, 
Britain is almost a police state. I say Britain because it's the British government that's doing it. He writes uh, Scots Mahay, which at a time when the most prominent champions of the French Revolution, Thomas, Thomas Muir, are on trial in Edinburgh, he sets that song to what he believed was the tune that Robert the Bruce's army marched to Bannockburn with. And he also brings in bits of the French Revolution anthem, Sirah, Sirah. So if you look at Scots Mahay, and I was brought up to sort of think of this as our other national anthem, it's not in that sense. It's a really revolutionary piece of writing, attacking tyrants, despots, we are called to liberate. I'm sure Alice is going to read us a bit in a minute to uh, bring that home. Yeah. I mean, Scotsway is a fascinating tune. <clears throat> that tune, Hey Tutti Tati, that he put the tune to, is uh, played to this day as a French military march because it was used at the liberation of Orléans by the troops of La Garde Écossaise who liberated, along with Joan of Arc, the city of Orléans, and eventually removed the English occupation from France. And uh, you can go on YouTube and put in La Marche des Soldats de Robert Bruce, the March of the Soldiers of Robert Bruce, and there's about 10 brilliant uh, performances of Scots Wahé played by fr French military influence. The other one about Scots Wahé is uh, when Texas rose up against uh, the Mexico and tried to create the state of Texas, the proclamation calling them to arms at the Battle of San Jacinto had the banner headline, Now's the Day and Now's the Hour, from uh, Scots Wahé. And yes, it was a, a poem that celebrated the, the American and the French Revolution, but it was, you know, with its reference to Wallace and Bruce, Wallace was a living tradition for Burns as he grew up, and he said that Blenhari's Wallace, probably in a, an 18th century translation by Hamilton of Gilbert, fuel from memory it was, he said that the story of Wallace poured a Scottish prejudice in my veins, which will boil along there till the floodgates of life shut in eternal rest. So he was very, very much committed to the liber liberation of Scotland as well as uh, the liberation of the common man through the French Revolution and the, and the American Revolution. Lay the proud usurpers low, tyrants fall in every foe, liberties in every blow, let us do or die. I mean, when news of Burns' death in 1796 reached Belfast, the Northern Star, the newspaper of the Republican United Irishman, published Scots Wahé and say it was originally a quarrying hall for Scottish radicals back in 1794. But they then added, it's now a call for rebellion in the Ulster of 1796. The rebellion came two years later. So he was influencing the foundations of the Republican movement in uh, Ireland, very different from what might become at that time, led by Presbyterians, many from a Scottish background. Yeah. Scots were here, would be sung by radical, radical reformers and chartists, not just in Scotland, but south, down south in the 1820s, 30s and 40s because it was seen as a tribute to the idea of freedom. And in fact, in 1839, the Chartist leader, Fergus O'Connor, touring Scotland, reported back from Kilmarnock, he said the whole population could sing the song in perfect harmony. Yeah. So, I mean, this is quite a long way away from sort of the kind of the Burns' supper I grew up with, which was really a, a sort of Freemasonry middle mm. class, you know, a, a, from which we were excluded. Yeah, but that period too, I mean, in the, uh, the period of the Friends of the People and the United Scotsmen, the United Irishmen, I mean, things were so bad there at that time that Scots Wahé was played in a march, a working-class celebration in the Airdrie in the 1790s, and they were all arrested. The whole Fife Band was arrested 
the, the book on the Scottish uh, Weavers Revolt of 1820, detail gives details like that. And it was a period where literally you could be killed as the three martyrs in 1820 were for carrying banners like Scotland Three in a Desert into the into the the weavers revolt so it was a very dangerous period to be a radical and that's why burns had to watch his back at times or he could end up in serious trouble too well he had to watch his back i mean in 1793 he was denounced by a government spy to his employers the majesty's customs and excise because he was head of a jacobin group now he responded by denying all that in a letter but i mean he was i mean he'd been in trouble in dumfries because in uh, one theatre, he didn't stand up for God Save the King. In another, he sang Siraz Samara, the French Revolutionary Song. He was open about this. So uh, he had to try and hide his views to survive and keep his job. But on the other hand, he had been very open about what he stood for in Dumfries. He didn't hide that much. Again, contradictory. I think that needs to be brought up because it wasn't the Burns I was brought up with. You know, I had no idea that he was a radical in this, in this way. Yeah. You know, true amounts of what I was brought up with, essentially. Right. So would you characterise Burns himself as a revolutionary then? I wouldn't say he was a revolutionary, but I would say he was someone who's clearly sympathetic to the revolutionary ideas of the French Revolution. And even at the worst time, I mean, you know, when the king's head was cut off, he didn't Welsh on that. Uh, he had been sympathetic to the American Revolution. So I wouldn't go as far as say he was a revolutionary because that suggests he's living out of Gareth, writing leaflets and so on. He wasn't. But I think he had revolutionary sympathies. Let's put it like that. Absolutely. Revolutionary sympathies and as the Scottish sympathies. He was one of us, basically. In 1795, he wrote A Man's A Man for All That. Chris, back in 2014, during the independence referendum campaign, you wrote a piece for The Guardian asking how Burns might have voted and answered it by saying yes. Do you still stand by that? I think if you look at Burns, because of what we're talking about, his drive for, you know, liberty, freedom, etc. And I said in the article, I think there's lots of people who I did meet and encounter in the course of my life, people like Harry McShane. I've got no doubt Harry McShane, for instance, John McLean's old comrade, who I met on a number of occasions, would have voted yes. Because it's about democracy. I mean, you know, the way it was promoted in the BBC, it was about hating the English. But that vote was a vote for democracy. Fundamentally, and I think Burns was a champion of democracy. So yes, I do think he would avoid yes. Billy, what do you think? <laughs> he was de- he was definitely a yes voter. I, <laughs> I spoke to him personally at the time, <laughs> and he was definitely a yes voter. <laughs> the, that uh, the song "A Man's a Man for All That." An interesting, again, international connection with that is the German revolutionary writer Ferdinand Freiligrath wrote a translation of A Man's A Man for All That called Trotz Aladim, which is Trotz Aladim und Aladim, for all that and all that. And it became a slogan in the German workers' movement during the 1843 revolution and 1848 revolution. So his work was still having a radical effect uh, 50, 60 years later after his death. And he's an ongoing influence. As I say, in my family growing up, he was the biggest cultural influence there was. And I think a lot of people think that he gradually in his, in his latter years, he concentrated on, on folk song and think that somehow isn't he as important. It was hugely important because today the reason Burns is known around the world is because of songs like A Man's A Man For All That and Scots Wahey 
and my love is like a red, red rose, etc., etc. He's sung. He's somebody who isn't just in dry, dusty tones. People know his work through his songs. And what a great project that was to collect all of these songs. Because a lot of songs like All Lang Syne were fragments that were already existing in the public domain for about a century before he gathered the fragments together and polished them into the great international song that we have today, Old Lang Syne. So even in, in his last years where he was a war with the deal and the excisement, he was still doing this major, major cultural project of recording the great songs that we sing today. Amazing. Thanks very much, Billy and Chris, for a really interesting discussion about Robert Burns, who I think we can conclude is indeed worthy of the title Rebel. Thanks also to Alice Kinghorn Gray for her beautiful renditions of some of Burns' poetry for us. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and keep a lookout for our next Rebel Lives episode, which will be about the life and politics of James Connolly. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A People's History of Scotland. This series is only possible because of support from listeners like you. If you'd like to help us make more shows like this, please head over to contour.scot and make a donation or subscribe to our Patreon channel. The music is by Ewan McLennan from the album Stories Still Untold. Special thanks to him for allowing us to use this song. Today's our enemy God bless our boys The papers scream Praise them the churchmen cry But oh when the war is done And we're all home Who cares if we live or die We'll oh we'll oh Till that happy day We're called to a heaven on high Oh, and the freedom we never had in our lives will be there on the day we die. But have you seen, oh, what suffering hell on earth for the promise of a heaven above? Oh, I not join the fight that one day we might see a heaven down here below. See a heaven down here below.